Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and happy Friday. Happy October 1st. First Friday in October, we have made it, and we have a great show in store for you today. My friend Kurt Thompson is here. I love and adore Kurt Thompson, and this interview is going to be one that I promise you, you're going to need a notepad and a pencil, and you're going to listen to it twice maybe even three times, just mark my word. Before we get to that conversation, I would like to say that today is my book, UBU. It's its first birthday. Happy birthday, UBU. This book came out last year on October 1st, and I am so excited about even just some of you guys that have never read it before, picking it up because I'm telling you about it today. Okay, here's something from the introduction from UBU. It kind of tells you what the book is about. It says this, you've probably heard and seen these sayings pop up in your Pinterest feed, the things people put out there to motivate and inspire us. Things like, girl, you got this. You're enough. Hustle more. Get things done. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to. You control your destiny. You are your own boss. You see, all these ideas are good. They're super motivating, but I'd like to suggest they're lacking. They are shallow and unsustainable. Not one of them is capable of bringing lasting hope and peace to your life. Not one of them is powerful enough to help you overcome whatever real life struggle you're facing. I'll even go far enough out on the ledge to proclaim that these truths alone can be damning. Notice I said these truths alone. Most of them are not entirely bad in themselves. In fact, I've probably said them all to different people at various points in my life. But what I'm seeing today is a world where women of faith are taking these cute little sayings and standing on them as if they are the way, the truth, and the life, and they are not. You see, that is the danger in these sayings. They can't hold up under the pressures of the world because no, you're not enough, girl. You ain't got this and you can't hustle enough and can't get enough things done. You can't do everything you set your mind on, no matter how badly you want to do it. You don't control your own destiny because the one who made you has the days of your life already numbered, planned, and written for you. And sometimes life can be so hard that there aren't enough bootstraps in all the world to pull yourself up with. We're only enough because Jesus is enough. The only good things coming from you and me are coming from the Father. So when I say you be you, understand I'm not just spouting a cheap shout out. I'm saying you have a strength of calling that originates in the mind of God. I'm saying that you have a voice and a platform that matters immensely today simply because it's the voice that he has given you. I'm saying that you, my friend, that's listening to my voice today, you have talents and giftings that he's invested in you, designed for a purpose way bigger than yourself. I'm saying that you can be biblically assured that no trial, no tragedy is oppressive enough to suffocate what he's put you on this earth for. And this means that you can experience satisfaction today. You can experience success today. Real satisfaction and real success comes from doing what you do, doing it where you are and doing it in faithfulness to the God who has lovingly, strategically put 
you there. So that is from the introduction of UBU and it kind of sums up what the book is about. So happy birthday to UBU. Why satisfaction and success are closer than you think. You guys, if you haven't read it, you can get it wherever books are sold. I would love that. If you order it from my store, jamieivy.com slash store, I can sign it for you. You can even order it for a friend. There's a little place in there to put a note to. You can say, please sign for my friend, Rebecca. It's her 18th birthday and I will do that for you. Okay, speaking of books, this is basically the very last show before my newest book, which is for kids, releases God Made You to Be You. If you're listening to this on the day the show comes out, it's a Friday. And on Tuesday, this book enters into the world. And I've said this often, I don't know that I have been prouder of a project than I am of this book right here. It's got an important message that's good for our kids. It is a board book and it's for ages two to six. And it is so beautiful and so lovely. And I'm so stinking proud of it. So you can also get that book wherever you find books. If you want more information about it, go to jamieivy.com slash kids. All right, guys, I read you introduction. I told you about my new book, but let's get to Kurt Thompson, all right? I have known about Kurt for a couple of years. I met him through the If Gathering a couple of years ago. I've read his, some of his books, but then you'll hear me talk about in here. Just recently, I'm super honored and humbled and just cannot believe that I have the opportunity to be in a confessional community group with Kurt. It is one of God's greatest gifts for me in 2021, that is for sure. And so we talk a little bit about that. We talk about shame in this episode and we talk about what it is that a confessional community is. Guys, Kurt's newest book, The Soul of Desire, it actually releases next Tuesday. And so pre-order it, get it. All of his books are worth reading for sure. Today, Kurt says, he says, no healing takes place without side effects. We dive into that conversation and I admit some of the reasons why that seems super scary to me. Kurt's a professional psychiatrist and I am so blown away by the work that he's doing to help people tell their stories more truly, myself included, whether that's overcoming shame or childhood wounds or the stories that we've told ourselves. Kurt is passionate about reminding us all that we are never completely alone. You guys, I tried real hard to not make this whole conversation a therapy session for myself, but... I hope it will encourage you and challenge you and remind you that Jesus does not represent the traumas in our life. Friends, thanks for joining me today. I am super thankful for every single time that you show up and listen. And if this is your first time being here, I'm glad you're here. Come back every Wednesday and Friday. We've got new shows for you. Guys, once again, happy birthday, UBU. Make sure you check out God Made You to Be You, which comes out next Tuesday. And this episode... I'm going to listen to it again myself because it is dear to my heart, this conversation with Kurt. And we could have talked for hours and hours and hours. But you know what? Kurt has his own podcast. If you would like to listen to Kurt talk for hours and hours and hours, go listen to Kurt's podcast. It is called the Being Known Podcast. Check it out wherever you listen to shows. All right, friends, enough from me. Here is my conversation with Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson, welcome to the happy hour. <laughs> Jamie Ivy, my hour is now happier because I'm recording with you. I hope this so. Is awesome. I hope so. Okay. Mm. Uh, okay. For real, introduce yourself to all of our listeners. So my name is Kurt and I grew, I was born and raised in Ohio. I am the fourth of four sons. My brothers were 18, 16, and 11 when I was born. My parents were in their mid-40s, so that's a story in and of itself. I am married to Phyllis for 35 years in two weeks. Two weeks. Congratulations. Thanks be to God. We have two kids, a daughter who's 31 and who's a pastor in Nashville, and a son who's in graduate school who lives here in Arlington, but is online graduate school in California. So those three relationships have been really formative for me over the course of you know most of my adult life now. No, no question about that. 
And I would also say that I can't, like I often say to people, like my tagline is, I don't deserve my life. Hmm. And I really don't deserve my life. And I think that, I don't know if this is the first thing that stands out. Like I don't deserve my life because the friendships that I have, like I can't, I have no words. Hmm. I have no words for the friendships I have, for the people who have elected to continue to love me over the course of many years, in whose presence and company I've come to be known and come to know things about myself and things about them, of course. And so I think between my family and my friendships, and these these friendships, some of which are part of the covenant group that are in our, from our church, we've been in part of for 30 years. I have new friends that continue to remind me that Jesus is coming to find me, like mm. in all kinds of ways, and especially coming to find me in the places about my story that I sometimes don't even know that I don't know, and finding me in ways that are continue to be healing, continue to be regenerating and encouraging for me. I also would say that I am a professional sinner. I'm not an amateur. I'm really good at it. And uh, hence, I need lots of help. And I, the other thing too, I think, you know, so as a, you know, for a living, I'm a psychiatrist. And, you know, I say that I think the work that I do is to help people tell their stories more truly. And that I've been deeply privileged to be with people who are working really hard to get after it in that regard. And in the time that, you know, for three days that you were part of, the well, we were both part of a, of a group that was like getting after it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that I do that is more meaningful to me. Mm-hmm than being in the room where people are not messing around and they're doing the work of sacred healing and recommissioning where there are like gallons of tears and buckets of laughter and the Holy Spirit is on the loose, giving people new beautiful things to make and create Mm. and new risks to take and new willingness to walk into places where you might get hurt and you might make mistakes and it's okay because we're going to do this joyfully. We're going to be of good cheer even in the face of tribulation. Yeah, I'll stop with that. That's not really an introduction. I don't know what that's, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know where I got. I, I loved your introduction and I already wrote down Jesus coming to find me because I needed to hear that today as well. You know, you talk about these groups and the one that you and I are part of is such a joy for me. And there were buckets of tears and buckets of laughter and the Holy Spirit was loose. And it was one of my most profound weekends of my entire life. You talk about this story and kind of create, not creating, but telling a more truthful story about ourselves. And mm-hmm. I texted you last night and I said, I'm going to try real hard to not make this hour of therapy session for Jamie <laughs> Ivey. <laughs> but I will say that that has been one of the things that has stuck with me from our time as we entered into this confessional community that I'm a part of with you. And I want to talk about that from your book. Your book comes out October 5th, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. And you dive into that a lot. But I think I would like to hear this idea of telling a more truthful story, because I think that is a foreign concept to so many people because we think, well, of Mm -hmm. course I know my story, like I've lived Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm starting to discover about myself that I don't think I've been fully aware of is the fact that even some of my story was told for me before I even arrived on this earth. And that is a thing that is freedom for people. So can you just dive into that, a more truthful story about who we are? Yeah. So I'll just give an example. I mean, so I mentioned I'm the fourth of four sons and my parents were in their mid forties. They raised sons in the forties, fifties, sixties, and (laughs) seventies. That's a big range. Those are four. I mean, there are many of our listeners like they don't even know that there was a 1940s. Right. right? And it's a big range. And there are lots of differences within those realms. 
And it also meant that, and these are like, as I say, like anything good about my life has my parents' fingerprints all over it. And they were imperfect. Mm-hmm. There were things that I wish that I'd gotten from my dad and my mom differently than the way that I did. And well, nobody's throwing anybody under the bus. But the reality is that as we say, like, we know that we're reaching some level of maturity as adults when we are able to effectively forgive our parents, which means we have to name what it is about our parents that they did or didn't do that were wounding to us. Mm-hmm. And everybody does it, right? The only way you don't screw up your kids is don't have them, as we've said. And so one of the ways in which I grew up, you know, there was this sense in which I and I grew up in this family in this small town in Ohio and all my brothers were athletes. They all went to college to play basketball. And, you know, by the time they get to me, like the talent pool had been drained. Like, I don't know whatever the gene pool was up to, like it wasn't up to the same thing when I came along. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain story that is told about who you are. Like, yes, I'm the youngest and I'm this and I'm that and so forth and so on. And I'm part of this brotherhood where the brothers love each other. And and so there's this story that is told, like literally, like we would be in family gatherings and like, oh, this is great. And at the same time, like that was not my lived experience. Hmm. My lived experience was one in which there were elements of my relationship with my brothers that were really wonderful. And then there were elements of my, you know, like I had the nickname of little Joseph. Like it was in Joseph in the Bible with a multicolored mm-hmm. coat mm-hmm. and all the implications of that. And yeah. like, it was really funny for, you know, for a sliver of a micro moment. But the reality is like, people don't say that unless there's something going on underneath. Yeah. And like, this would be the story that would be told, like, you know, it's in, you know, Thompson folklore. Yeah. And we all thought it was funny, like, but it doesn't land in my brain as being very funny. And so, you know, you walk around saying, oh, yeah, I'm the fourth of four sons and, blah, 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 and like, and at the same time, there's all this wounding. And by wounding, I I don't mean that I was, you know, I didn't grow up in a physically, emotionally, sexually abusive home. And so, but I grew up in a home where like, you're not allowed to be angry with your parents. You're not allowed to be, you know, you can't be upset because you're going to upset your mom's going to get like all the things that you're not allowed to be. And so it's not until I'm in my, you know, mid to late thirties, I'm in psychiatric training. And I begin, they said in my last year, we think it'd be good for you to be in therapy. And I'm like, really? I didn't know. I thought we're the doctors. Like, why do we need to be there? So I go to, for the last year of residency, I met with this psychiatrist for, for the year. And like, suddenly there's like, he's asking questions that nobody has asked before. Mm. And, you know, so I access the reality that like, as it turns out, like I hate being called little Joseph, Mm -hmm. but you know, we've got to maintain the story Mm -hmm. because nobody's really able to say what they really feel. Like I my oldest brother went off to college and I was born a week later. And there were things that became true in my family because of that, that nobody ever names Mm. until as it turns out, you know, I've lost all three of my older brothers to cancer. And now my, both my parents, I'm the only living member of my family. And it's interesting how I may have said this in the weekend, like there are certain conversations that you can't have until certain people are dead. Mm-hmm. When you're no longer afraid that if you say what you say, there's not going to be some kind of backlash because of it. And so I had to learn that there were elements of my story that were true, that I wasn't even aware of until mm-hmm. someone else is being curious with me about those and asking me. And of course, in so when Wes Hamilton, the psychiatrist that I met with for a year, when Wes Hamilton is asking these questions, of course, my first answer is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he'll wait and he would wait. Really? And then, you know, the feeling shows up in your chest. And the next thing you know, you know, your knuckles are curling around the edge of the chair. And you're like, where the heck is this coming from? I don't even know what the this is. Mm-hmm. And you know, at some point you start to feel things and somehow the feelings have to find the words. And then when they do, then the trouble begins Mm -hmm. because, you know, you've been living your life in a certain way, telling a certain story in order to cope with your life the way it is. And now if you're going to tell the story more truly, it means not everybody's going to be happy with you. 
Mm. as became the case. And you're thinking, you know, you're kind of like the blind guy in John nine, who is healed right off the bat. And the next thing you know, his life is a mess. Mm. So, you know, we say, if we're going to enter into this, that we're going to find that we're going to be healed. We're going to be more resilient. We're going to be more comfortable, more confident. And there are side effects to this process. Like any intervention, no healing takes place without side effects. Mm. And that's where, I mean, that's just one example of the number of ways in which you know, I learned that, you know, I, I tell a story. I mean, I've been married for 35 years. I tell the story when I'm early on getting, you know, getting, we're married now and right. And, and I've worked really hard in my life to make sure that I'm doing the work to make sure that nobody gets angry and nobody gets anxious anywhere mm-hmm. around me. And I'm really mm-hmm. good at this. Like my psychiatric training began when I was about seven. Right. <laughs> And so I get married to a person who like starts to show distress or whatever. And like, I'm not happy with this. And so what do I do? I don't know what to do. And so I just kind of stop talking. And of course she says like, now she's upset that I'm like, and I'm like, I'm trying not to rock the boat because this is what you do. Yeah. And so even this, it's like the story that I tell is you got to make sure that nobody gets anxious. And she's like, mm-hmm. not afraid of being anxious at all or being angry. And I mean, she's just that much more open Yeah. and it's distressing to me. And I have to figure out, oh gosh. I've been telling the story of my life and that I am or am not okay under certain conditions, but now I'm married to someone that I can't escape from mm-hmm. under, like, not that I want to, but under certain right. conditions, I like, I want to escape by like, just either stop talking or walk into the other room. Yeah. And it pulls forward uh, the parts of us that are the parts of me that are still, you know, seven years old mm. and have the experiences of things happening that are rupturing, but for which there's no platform for repairing it. And so you've got to find a way to just like batten down the hatches. And you can only do that for so long before your brain says like, I'm not doing this anymore. And then what? Well, then the brain kind of reveals itself to you. I mm-hmm. get anxious or I get mm-hmm. irritable or as I much as you like, try not to, it can't keep that up. Right. It can't do that. You know, Kurt, I, I 100% know I said this to you over that weekend is as I'm listening, and I think there might be someone else that listened. You said that this healing you're going to be more comfortable, more confident. You listed all these things and you said, and their side effects. Yeah. And I know I said this to you that I immediately think of just like, well, if I just don't go down that trail, I don't have to deal with those side effects mm-hmm. because what if I don't need to know those things? Mm-hmm. And so how can you convince me and us that that healing is better than dealing with the side effects that might come along with that? So here's where I would say that you know, the whole notion when uh, there, there is so much that is packed into the words, let us make humankind in our image, mm. which means that God takes us and each of our own individuals will far more seriously than we do. God is not going to be forced into doing anything, and he is not going to force us into doing anything. But what I would like for someone to do is to convince me ahead of time that the side effects are worth it. So that what you're really doing is you're making sure that I, you like, you can do all that work. You're dealing with the side effects by convincing me so that somehow I don't really have to willfully live in the real world. I don't have to pick up a cross. Like you can say like, Kurt, as it turns out, there really aren't that many splinters. You'll be fine. Mm. You're like, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be difficult, but this is part of the thing. I mean, p- part of how it is that I even think about side effects. I need you to say that there are side effects mm-hmm. because I need to not be surprised when things get difficult in yeah. this world. You will have tribulation, Jesus says, but then he says, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. He's like, I want you to know that part of what it means to be broken as a human being, part of what the garden of Eden gave us was our incessant commitment to believing that we are alone. 
This is what shame does. I mean, in, in its ancient, well-patterned, well-practiced ways. Like I come into the world, right? David says in 51 Psalm, right? I am a sinner at conception. I come, I was born into this world this way, which means I come into the world believing I'm alone. Mm. Now I may have parents that are like working really, really well to create a space for secure attachment so that that sense of aloneness is not nearly as painful as it might be for others. But at some point, I am still working through that whole notion of like, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. And then Jesus comes and says, I am with you. Now, of course, we've been hearing this all throughout the Old Testament. I am with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And when then we get to, he finally says, like, I'm not going to leave you even to the end of the age. You will have tribulation, but I will be with you. Mm. I am with you. And so even when we're talking about the side effects, as we were talking about that weekend, and we invite, I invite you to say, okay, like, I realize, like, I can't convince you. Mm-hmm. I can't convince you ahead of time because to do so means you don't really get to fully own your choice. Mm-hmm. But when you do, and when you learn that as you take the first step into the pool after living, believing that you're drowning, mm-hmm. and as you do, you lock eyes with me or someone else who's letting you know that we're not going to let you drown. Even in this space where this moment feels excruciating and feels like you're not going to be able to catch your breath, I'm going to tell you, we are your life preserver. This is the Holy Spirit on the loose and you stick your foot in the pool and then you stick your leg in the pool and then you're up to your waist in the pool, recognizing that as you look around, there's no place you look where someone isn't coming to find you. Mm. And in that very moment, the very trauma, the very sadness, the very shame, it in itself is being transformed because now you're having the experience of experiencing that shame in the context of the gaze Mm. of someone who with their gaze is saying, I've never loved you more than I do right now as you're telling me this story about this part of your life that just feels so God-awful. And in that space, you become persuaded as you take the risk, not before you do. And there is no other way that we live. Hmm. It reminds me of the story of the silver chair where Aslan confronts this young girl who finds herself in Narnia, lost, thirsty, hearing a bubbling brook, approaching it only to find this larger than life lion. And they had this conversation in which she says, do you eat little girls? Because she's got to get to the water to drink and he's in between her and the water. And she's terrified. Like, what are the risks? What are the side effects? Do you promise not to eat little girls? And he said, I make no such promise. Have you eaten little girls before? I have eaten little girls and boys, kingdoms and realms. And she said, oh my I must go find water because like, I'm going to die of thirst. He said, and then you will, but you can come here and drink. And she said, no, I must go find someplace else. And he says, there is no other stream. Mm. There is no other way. Jesus is coming to find the real Kurt, the real Jamie, the real, all of us. Like he comes to find Peter in John 21. Do you love me over and over and over again? Like there's no stone he's leaving unturned. And we don't really realize how much energy we're burning, containing all of those large and micro moments of shame. Mm -hmm. And the energy that we burn is not available to us to then create the beauty that God has waiting for us that he has planned from before the foundation of the world. And I mean, no wonder you're exhausted when you go home. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm 
to tap into your power and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music. Just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. I was telling Kurt before we started that the weekend that we had, I was just exhausted from this. And, you know, even me coming into that weekend and feeling scared mm-hmm. and, all, and and funny about it, I knew I was joining the confessional community. I did not know what was going to happen. <laughs> I think I just said yes to my friend because I trusted her. And next thing I know, I'm having to pull apart my wounds. <laughs> and I hesitantly did because I was afraid of the side effects. Yeah. But when you just talked about that moment of other people gazing at you saying, we're not going to let you drown. I've never experienced what I experienced that weekend with all of us telling our stories and really becoming this cloud of witnesses going, we're not going to let you drown. We're not going to let you drown. And so we're talking about something that you call confessional communities. And you kind of dive into this in your book a lot, which I want to recommend everyone get. It comes out October 5th. And everyone is thinking right now, how do I get in a confessional community with Kurt Thompson, Jamie? How did you get that? I'm like, I don't actually know, guys. But what does this look like? And you do this in your book. So, but tell us right now, what does this look like in real life? Because we even had this conversation at the end of our weekend. Like, how do we go back into life for a couple of reasons? Number one, there's so much healing involved. There's so much trust. There's so much grace. There's so much pulling apart shame, not feeling alone. It's Mm. also a lot of hard work. I mean, just to be Mm. blunt and honest, it's a lot of hard work as well. What does this look like to the person who's listening going, I want to be a part of a confessional community? What does that mean for them in their everyday life? Yeah. Well, it's not, I can assure you, it is not, here's the three steps. You just do this and you'll be on your way this time next week. You know, it's kind of like the Boston Marathon. There are so many runners in that now that when the gun goes off, it takes many of them, many, many, many minutes just to get to the starting line Mm -hmm. before they start to do the work of running the marathon. And as I tell folks, first of all, it's important to know that this is the kind of work, the fruit of which gets born, the outcomes of which are, are beautiful. There's no question that there's beauty, there's harvest everywhere. And it will likely be the hardest work you ever do in your life. And so it's important to know that it is hard to do and it's beautiful work and it's liberating work. And it's hard to do. Did we say this, right? <laughs> right. This is difficult. We're gonna, this is hard. We're going to keep, we're, but we're going to keep doing it. And we're going to keep acknowledging that this is hard mm-hmm. because acknowledging that this is hard and the fact that it continues to 
You know, it's kind of like we say, if you want to start to lift weights and you can first, you bench press a hundred pounds and you've never lifted weights before, but you can bench press a hundred pounds, but you do in the next day, like your lactic acid build up and you can't, you know, like muscles that move your eyelids and so forth. But eventually you, you know, you feel like you're working hard to bench press a hundred pounds and then you gradually move up. And the overall process of lifting weights becomes one that you like, you enter into it and you look forward to it. Not because like you might just enjoy lifting weights, but like you enjoy the outcome of what this is doing for you. It's Mm -hmm. helping you be healthier and feel better and lots of other things that you're doing. And at one level, we would say, gosh, the difficulty is not the same as it was the first time I did it. And there's all the lactic acid buildup. And I was just like scared to do it. Right. At another level, I can tell you that by the time you're benching 230, you're working a lot harder than you were when you were benching 100 pounds. And we forget Mm-hmm. that for every level of growth, you can be guaranteed that evil is coming for you. And when it does, it's going to come with the next iteration of temptation that will want to latch on parasitically to your old neural networks to try to get you to remember mm. that you're really not loved, that you're really not safe. You're not going to be seen, soothed, secure. And it will do so because you're coming to the next couple of plates that you're going to put on the bar. Yeah, you could bench 215. There's no way you're going to get 220. Like you're going to drop this on your throat, Mm. which is why community is so crucially important for us to remember with each other that we are doing this together and that the Holy Spirit is in the presence and that Jesus is really the king over all this process. And so it's important to know that this is hard to do, but it's gloriously hard to do. Number one. Number two, it will often take the intensification of something like a weekend that you experience or extended periods of time for you to discover what this can really be about. We don't get in shape in a weekend. We get in shape over, you know, six, 12 months. That's also an element of how it proves to be something like there's work, there's effort, right? Perseverance. I have to practice, practice, practice this. Another thing that I would say is like, okay, uh, we're talking about this and Kurt, you're like tempting us to do this. And this sounds like great, except for the parts that sound awful. <laughs> right. And, but who am I going to get to do this with? Like if I could only find the right people, right. If I can find the right people to which I would say, Jesus knows exactly what this is like. Can you imagine, right. That we know mm-hmm. that he was out 40 days and he's doing his prayer. And he's like, before he comes back and decides to choose people. And I'm guessing Jesus is praying to the father. And so like, dang, like, I hope I can find anybody right. that will do this. You know, for the love of me, I got to hope I could find anybody to do this. And he tries and some will come along and some don't. And like right even up to the ascension in Matthew's gospel, there were some who doubted. Mm -hmm. And so how do we start? We say, okay, if you can imagine one person in your life, one person in your life that you trust enough to say, I would like to try to start to tell them my story. And I'd like them to tell me theirs. We're just going to trust the two of us. We're going to try this. And, you know, there's, we've got some instructions in, in the soul of shame. And then this book that's coming now in the last chapter, there's some ways, you know, some framework yeah. for doing this. And how do we tell our story and are important questions to ask and so forth and so on. And if you get down the road six weeks and you find, gosh, we're doing this effectively. And then say like, who's another person? Hmm. Bring one more into your audience, bring one more into your circle, or you each think like, well, okay, I can think of one other person and you can think of one other person we're going to do. We're going to bring two other people into this and we're going to grow this gradually. I may have mentioned this while we were together. I've you know been so taken and moved by the series, The Chosen in so many different ways in which it's been helpful. And, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is the way that Dallas Jenkins portrays, like Jesus is just not moving fast enough for these disciples. Mm-hmm. 
Like they want things done yesterday. They want things like it's going to be bigger. It's going to be better. We're going to scale this Instagram, like everything, right? We're <laughs> going to, we're going to, yes. this is all right. This is what we're going to do. And, you know, he's forever saying things like that's a conversation for another time. Mm. And I'm like, what do you mean? I would want us to remember that growing durable, resilient neural networks requires long periods of time. For some reason, God didn't choose four days or four weeks. It was four decades in the mm. desert with the Hebrews. For some reason, God doesn't just usher everything in. Even as St. Paul apparently thought that Jesus' return was imminent. God moves slowly, of course, which I've got a beef with him about this, not least of which because it's in my own life. Like, why am I only learning now at age almost 59? Why, why didn't I learn this 40 years ago at 19? Right. So that I could have prevented like all the things that I've done in the meantime. And I think I hear Jesus saying, that's a story for another time. Mm. And I'm like, but I want to have it now so that I can understand, so that I can know that I know that I know. And I can hear him saying, oh, kind of like Adam and Eve needed to know that they know that they know. And so they took mm. because they needed to know in the way that you want to know. And I want you to trust. And I want you to trust that I'm not worried about your progress. What I'm most passionate about, I want you to see me seeing you in the middle of where you are. And know that when your brainstem kicks up in the middle of this marriage, in the middle of this problem, in the middle of that, so forth and so on, like, I need you to see me seeing you and know that I'm not leaving the room. And we're going to take the next step into deeper water in the pool. You're going to swim the next lap and you're going to want me to move faster. And I'm going to want you to move with me. Mm. And the way I'm going to help you do this is because you're going to look around and Jamie's going to be there. And my friend Byron's and Jerry's going to be there and Neil are going to be there. Like these are the people that are going to be there. They're going to say like, we don't leave the room. And when we are willing to be faithful and trust and take the next step, we give the Holy Spirit all kinds of room to do things that I otherwise am typically just getting in the way mm. of him doing with all of my anxiety and all my shame and all my need to control my environment and my circumstances because I'm so like, I'm still so committed to believing that God is a tyrant and that my shame and my fear are going to find me out at the end. And so it would be all better if I just don't ever like, why would I ever do this? Like, this mm. sounds horrible. This sounds like a horrible idea, Kurt. And I would say, you know, it is hard, which is why Jesus didn't say, all of you who want to be my disciples, pick up your Tesla and come and follow me. Mm -hmm. Pick up this cross. In some respects, the cross of choosing to trust that I'm with you and giving up this whole storyline that you've constructed, right? The storyline that the rich young ruler had, that even with all of his wealth, like he was not going to be okay if he could not be in charge of the story. What must mm -hmm. I do? to inherit the kingdom. And Jesus is like, that's not the question, bro. Mm. The thing no. that you must do is the thing you have no practice doing, which is just coming and being with me and mm. watching me watch you, seeing you, hearing me say, you don't have to worry about not working at getting me to love you. I'm not your dad. I'm not your mom. I don't represent the traumas in your life. I'm wholly different than any of that, but I'm not going to twist your arm. And the way Jesus invites us to do this is through the embodied presence of those who are going to join us in these communities. I'll pause with that. That's a lot. Kurt, I confess on this podcast and to you too, like my fear of the side effects, you know, like, oh, this is so hard. But I also fully experienced stepping into the water and looking around and having people say, we're not going to let you drown and it's worth it all. One of the things that I took from that weekend, which I came home and spoiler alert, I'm going to send you one, but I had a friend of mine who designed stuff, write the scripture on a card. And so I'm going to send it to you and everyone in the group. And it was that Jeremiah 6, 16 mm -hmm. scripture that you read for us or where the last part of it says, stand at the crossroads and look, 
ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. You say in your book, in our confessional communities, we're all standing at the crossroads of our lives as we are doing in every domain of living at all times. Every moment is a crossroads of choosing to move toward or away from integration, toward or away from Jesus and each other, toward or away from the goodness and beauty. Hence, we must ask for the ancient paths. What does that mean for us as we walk forward with our community to to look and ask for the ancient paths? Well, I think we talked a little bit about this when we were together. We think about, I think of, you know, in that text, what Jeremiah is referring to is the ancient paths of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And a couple of additions, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but I think, you know, two, one ancient path has to do with the reality is that my story didn't begin with me, right? My parents, like when I was, when my parents in their mid forties discovered that they're pregnant with me, I like, I am not first and foremost, a source of joy. I'm a source mm-hmm. of anxiety. Yeah. Some would say that, you know, I've continued to be that in some respects, right? I'm a source of anxiety. And, and of course this comes out you know, not intentionally, not consciously, but it's still like, you can't avoid this. Like Kurt, mm-hmm. like he makes me worry. And so our stories are told generationally before us that comes up to our story. And we tell our story in a way like, so right now, like I got to figure out at 59, like, why have I been telling my story the way that I do? Mm. And you go back to the first two decades of life. And I put myself on a path in response to the way that I was growing up that has me telling a story now about all kinds of things that isn't completely true. Mm. Not as in it's false, but it's not complete. And Jesus wants us to tell that entire ancient path story. And the other ancient path that is important for us to pay attention to is that's our neurobiology, right? Like there's the part of me that lives first and foremost, that recognizes that the world is a place to be afraid of. Like my brainstem is the oldest part, mm. like reptiles. My brainstem wants to run the show first and foremost. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Is it dangerous? And that will shape how I tell my story. So my brain is also engaged in this ancient path stuff, along with my limbic circuitry, my emotion that tends to want to get regulated as quickly as possible. And whatever I need to do to reduce that distress, I'm going to do that, including telling the story of like, well, I must not be working hard enough at this. So I'll just work harder as opposed to actually, I feel bad because somebody else is mistreating me. And this is what's been the case in my growing up in my family, as opposed to now, like the way I tell the story is like, I'm the problem, Mm. but that's an ancient path that we tell neurobiologically. So we've got our ancient story. That's part of our family and our own. We've got our ancient neurobiology that like we practice this and it becomes like, you know, I know it as well as I know three times two is six and to unlearn that would be impossible. Mm -hmm. But we're matching both of those against the ancient story that God says, even when we know the good Friday is coming, we're going to make them anyway. Even when God says, I got four decades with these people in the desert. I'm going to go get them anyway, even though I know that they're likely going to kill him. We're going to go get them. That's the ancient story. The ancient story is that even in our trauma, Jesus has been with us. The way I tell the story, like that's not the story. I am alone. I come out of the uterus believing I'm alone. And God, who says in Jeremiah chapter one, before I formed you, I knew you. And so part of our work is to be literally, viscerally, in my brain, in my body, literally reconstituted to have the sense that you are with me, Mm. that someone is with me. And that is how I pay attention to the ancient paths. And the ancient paths are also good. Where does the good way lie? That even in this hard space, I've historically told a very different story. I've told not such a good way. I've told the like, I'm a problem. I'm a source of anxiety and I have to work really hard. I think, as I said to you guys, like I got to work really hard to make sure I stay in your head because like, I'm sure that the minute that you leave, like I will disappear. That's not a particularly good way to live. 
Yeah. And so I have to practice paying attention to a different good way, but it's not going to be one for me to just like, oh, this is true. I am going to learn this if I feel myself being seen by you in real time and space that can help me remember a different story that matches this ancient way that is the good way. And it is in practicing this that we are then able to continue to name the parts of us that are broken because now I've learned like, oh gosh, I've had some experiences stepping into the pool, being afraid, and I don't drown. So I'm going to step a little deeper. And even when I do, it doesn't mean that I will never be afraid. It means that when I am, you're coming to find me. I am not going to go into the conversation that you and I had individually at our weekend together, but this was such a beautiful thing for me. And I was telling someone of how many times I have told myself a different story than what I have been saying for years about something in my own life. Mm. And it has been so healing and I have to do it so often mm. to say that what I have been saying has not been the complete story. Yeah. It has not been all of it. And there are things that I was forgetting. There were paths that I wasn't remembering. You know, there were things in my past and my kids' past that just, I was leaving out as part of the story, right. you know? And right. it's been so helpful and healing for me. Hmm. Kurt, I'm so excited about this book coming into the world. And I have loved every work you've ever put out. And I think there's a much needed story right now and is coming out just in a couple of days here, October 5th. I would love to talk to you for 17 more hours because I would love to get a free 17 hour therapy session with you. But you know what? <laughs> no one else is here for that. <laughs> we'll see if we can arrange for that. We'll we see, can we'll, arrange we'll for work it out. when we're not recording it for the whole world to hear. In all seriousness, I'm very thankful for the work that you're doing. It is much needed in my own personal life. It is needed in this world. I'm grateful for your family, for your wife, and I hope I get to meet her one day and your two yep. kids. Kurt, I always finish the show by asking people what they're reading. And so I would love to hear what is Kurt Thompson reading these days? So I've talked about this. I'm actually uh, for the second, I, 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 I tend to read kind of a, you know, a handful of things at once and I'm not a fast reader. So it takes me time to get through things, but I'm currently reading for the second time through a work by author, Tom Holland. And he is a British author of antiquity and many of our listeners may know of him. And he's done a number of different works that have been really powerful historically, but Tom is not a believer, but he's written this book called Dominion. And it's a bit of a tome. It's about 450 to 500 pages. You know, you got to come with, you know, ready to like, yeah. You know, You're to read. But he's a brilliant writer. He's an engaging writer. And the story, and he will say this, not being a believer, he opens asking this question. How is it? He would say that in all of his growing up years in England and so forth, he pretty much, he assumed, you know, going to, he went to church, but then he kind of left faith, left the church, all those kinds of things. You know, that's a fairy tale. Like that, that can't be true. What's really true is what you read about in history and mm -hmm. geology and all the things. And for most of his life, he's just assumed that what is really true about the ethics and morality and the structures of, of the West have all come from the ancient Greek and Roman traditions. And then he studied them. And then he comes to this place where he discovers much to his surprise and much to almost his unwilling belief that as it turns out, you look around and anything that is actually good about our world in the West right now, it all comes back to Jesus. He asks this question. He says, now, whether or not you believe any of this is true is a different question, which is accurate. But he said, how is it that the 
thing we call crucifixion that the Romans and Greeks devised and used liberally to control slave and subverted populations, but who themselves would not talk or write about it in polite company because it was so culturally embarrassing. Holland points out there aren't many written records about it, but we've got the archaeology for it. We've got the other you know, evidence of it. that it's just, And they would just kill thousands of people mm. this way. And then he says, so the Romans, he said, like, you're not going to find it. Because they were I, embarrassed that this was a part of their life. Yeah, right. they, they needed to use it to, to maintain their world, but they would never want to admit that this is what it would mean to be a Roman. Right. Because it was so grotesque. Mm-hmm. And so with all this effort to suppress any record of it, Holland asks, how is it that one, one event in some backwater armpit of the Roman Empire becomes the singular event around which the entire history of the world revolves. Mm. And I've read this book once. I'm now in the middle of the second time because it fills me with such hope. Mm. Because even in the face of all of our brokenness, even in the face of all the things that we are imperfect at as believers, Holland points out experience after experience after experience that shows up in the cultural landscape, caring for the poor, eliminating slavery, like all the things he said, like nobody had ever thought of this before. Mm. And he said, we only have them, even our ethics, the whole notion that like we would pay attention to a victim. It's like that had no place before Jesus comes along. It's not even in the public imagination. And I've never before have I been so inspired and comforted and made more confident by the work of someone who's not a believer than I have in Mm. reading this book. And yeah, I get kind of come out of my shoes when I start to talk about it. But anyway, that is amazing. That is amazing. I might give into a 450 page book just for that. Kurt, I love you. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for coming on the happy hour. And I can't wait to see how God uses this book and the work you're doing in so many people's lives. So thank you. Thank you. It's all I mean, always like this is my first time. I would love to come back sometime anyway, if we ever get the chance. Yeah, I would love to make you a regular guest. I'm just going to have all my list of questions okay. and okay. we're just going to go to town. We'll keep doing it. Thank you so much. Great Thanks, to be with Kurt. you. You guys, was I right? Did you take notes? Do you need to listen to this again? Do you need to run right now and pre-order his book, The Soul of Desire? If you need to do any of those things, I recommend you do them all. Kurt has other books that are also really, really wonderful to dive into. And I'm excited about the work that he's doing. I'm honored to be a part of it. And I hope that today this show was encouraging to you. I hope that you were reminded, like I said in the introduction, that Jesus does not represent the traumas in our life. Whatever you were overcoming, you're not alone. You are not alone. You guys check out Kurt's podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'd encourage you to listen to other places other than just Apple. There are some great podcast platforms out there. I've been listening to all of my podcasts on Overcast recently, but check out his podcast. It's the Being Known Podcast, discovering and exploring what it means to be truly known. And pre-order his book. It comes out next week, but you can order it now, which would show him a lot of love. And it would be on your doorstep on Tuesday. And don't forget... God Made You To Be You releases into the world next week. Super honored to potentially be in your home with a book that you get to read to your kids or to your nieces and nephews or to your classroom or whoever is the young person in your life that you love to help you be a part of reminding them that God really did make them to be who they are to be. As always, every show has a link. Every show has show notes. Go to jamieivy.com slash HH430 for this particular episode. Just stands for happy hour episode number 430. So jamieivy.com slash HH430. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Happy Hour Jamie Ivy podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to bring to you, and every opportunity we get to point us all to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is actually the number one way that people find out about our show because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that make us think, make us laugh, and point us to Jesus. Also, come find me on other places around the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm at Jamie Ivy, And we've been having some fun posting videos on YouTube as well. Sometimes do you wish you could see the person I'm interviewing? Well, come over and find us there and you can. JamieIvy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics by Rachel Ray. The show is edited by the team at Podshaper. And I'm your host, Jamie. And I love every single week that I get to be here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend.